Squaring the Circle by O. Henry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. At the hazard of wearying youth, this tale of vehement emotions must be prefaced by a discourse on geometry. Nature moves in circles, art in straight lines. The natural is rounded, the artificial is made up of angles. A man lost in the snow wanders, in spite of himself, in perfect circles. The city man's feet, denaturalized by rectangular streets and floors, carry him ever away from himself. The round eyes of childhood typify innocence. The narrow line of the flirt's optic proves the invasion of art. The horizontal mouth is the mark of determined cunning, who has not read nature's most spontaneous lyric in lips rounded for the candid kiss. Beauty is nature in perfection. Circularity is its chief attribute. Behold the full moon, the enchanting gold ball, the domes of splendid temples, the huckleberry pie, the wedding ring, the circus ring, the ring for the waiter, and the round of drinks. On the other hand, straight lines show that nature has been deflected. Imagine Venus's girdle transformed into a straight front. When we begin to move in straight lines and turn sharp corners, our natures begin to change. The consequence is that nature, being more adaptive than art, tries to conform to its sterner regulations. The result is often a rather curious product. For instance, a prize chrysanthemum, wood alcohol whiskey, a Republican Missouri, cauliflower au gratin, and a New Yorker. Nature is lost quickest in a big city. The cause is geometrical, not moral. The straight lines of its streets and architecture, the rectangularity of its laws and social customs, the undeviating pavements, the hard, severe, depressing, uncompromising rules of all its ways, even of its recreation and sports, coldly exhibit a sneering defiance of the curved line of nature. Wherefore, it may be said that the big city has demonstrated the problem of squaring the circle. And it may be added that this mathematical introduction precedes an account of the fate of a Kentucky feud that was imported to the city that has a habit of making its importations conform to its angles. The feud began in the Cumberland Mountains between the Falwell and the Harkness families. The first victim of the homespun vendetta was a possum dog belonging to Bill Harkness. The Harkness family evened up this dire loss by laying out the chief of the Falwell clan. The Falwells were prompt at repartee. They oiled up their squirrel rifles and made it feasible for Bill Harkness to follow his dog to a land where the possums come down when treed without the stroke of an axe. The feud flourished for forty years. Harknesses were shot at the plough, through their lamp-lit cabin windows, coming from camp meetings, asleep, in duello, sober and otherwise, singly and in family groups, prepared and unprepared. 
Falwells had the branches of their family tree lopped off in similar ways, as the traditions of their country prescribed and authorized. By and by the pruning left but a single member of each family. And then Cal Harkness, probably reasoning that further pursuance of the controversy would give a too decided personal flavor to the feud, suddenly disappeared from the relieved Cumberlands, balking the avenging hand of Sam, the ultimate opposing Falwell. A year afterward, Sam Falwell learned that his hereditary, unsuppressed enemy was living in New York City. Sam turned over the big iron washpot in the yard, scraped off some of the soot, which he mixed with lard and shined his boots with a compound. He put on his store clothes of butternut dyed black, a white shirt and collar, and packed a carpet sack with Spartan lingerie. He took his squirrel rifle from its hooks, but put it back again with a sigh. However ethical and plausible the habit might be in the Cumberlands, perhaps New York would not swallow his pose of hunting squirrels among the skyscrapers along Broadway. An ancient but reliable Colt's revolver that he resurrected from a bureau drawer seemed to proclaim itself the pink of weapons for metropolitan adventure and vengeance. This and a hunting knife in a leather sheath Sam packed in the carpet sack. As he started, mule-back for the lowland railroad station, the last Falwell turned in his saddle and looked grimly at the little cluster of white pine slabs in the clump of cedars that marked the Falwell burying ground. Sam Falwell arrived in New York in the night. Still moving and living in the free circles of nature, he did not perceive the formidable, pitiless, restless, fierce angles of the great city waiting in the dark to close about the rotundity of his heart and brain and mold him to the form of its millions of reshaped victims. A cabbie picked him out of the whirl as Sam himself had often picked a nut from a bed of wind-tossed autumn leaves and whisked him away to a hotel commensurate to his boots and carpet-sack. On the next morning the last of the Falwells made his sortie into the city that sheltered the last Harkness. The colt was thrust beneath his coat and secured by a narrow leather belt. The hunting-knife hung between his shoulder-blades, with the haft an inch below his coat-collar. He knew this much, that Cal Harkness drove an express wagon somewhere in that town, and that he, Sam Falwell, had come to kill him and as he stepped upon the sidewalk the red came into his eye and the feud hate into his heart. The clamor of the central avenues drew him thitherward. He had half expected to see Cal coming down the street in his shirt sleeves with a jug and a whip in his hand, just as he would have seen him in Frankfurt or Laurel City. But an hour went by and Cal did not appear. Perhaps he was waiting in ambush to shoot him from a door or a window. Sam kept a sharp eye on doors and windows for a while. About noon the city tired of playing with its mouse, and suddenly squeezed him with its straight lines. Sam Falwell stood where two great rectangular arteries of the city cross. He looked four ways, and saw the world hurled from its orbit and reduced to spirit level and tape to an edged and cornered plain. All life moved on tracks in grooves according to system, within boundaries by rote. The root of life 
was the cube root. The measure of existence was square measure. People streamed by in straight rows. The horrible din and crash stupefied him. Sam leaned against the sharp corner of a stone building. Those faces passed him by thousands, and none of them were turned toward him. A sudden foolish fear that he had died and was a spirit, and that they could not see him, seized him. And then the city smote him with loneliness. A fat man dropped out of the stream and stood a few feet distant, waiting for his car. Sam crept to his side, and shouted above the tumult into his ear, The Rankinson's hogs weighed more than a whole passel, but the mash in their neighborhood was a fine chance better than it was down... The fat man moved away unostentatiously, and bought roasted chestnuts to cover his alarm. Sam felt the need of a drop of Mountain Dew. Across the street men passed in and out through swinging doors. Brief glimpses could be had of a glistening bar in its bee-deckings. A feudist crossed an essay to enter. Again had Art eliminated the familiar circle. Sam's hand found no doorknob. It slid in vain over a rectangular brass plate and polished oak with nothing even so large as a pin's head upon which his fingers might close. Abashed, reddened, heartbroken, he walked away from the bootless door and sat upon a step. A locust club tickled him in the ribs. "'Take a walk for yourself,' said the policeman. "'You've been loafing around here long enough.' At the next corner a shrill whistle sounded in Sam's ear. He wheeled around and saw a black-browed villain scowling at him over peanuts heaped on a steaming machine. He started across the street. An immense engine, running without mules, with the voice of a bull and the smell of a smoky lamp, whizzed past, grazing his knee. A cab-driver bumped him with a hub and explained to him that kind words were invented to be used on other occasions. A motorman clanged his bell wildly and, for once in his life, corroborated a cab-driver. A large lady in a changeable silk waist dug an elbow into his back, and a newsy pensively pelted him with banana rinds, murmuring, "'I hates to do it, but if anybody seen me, let it pass.' Cal Harkness, his day's work over and his express wagon stabled, turned the sharp edge of the building that, by the cheek of architects, is modeled upon a safety razor. Out of the mass of hurrying people his eye picked up, three yards away, the surviving bloody and implacable foe of his kith and kin. He stopped short and wavered for a moment, being unarmed and sharply surprised. But the keen mountaineer's eye of Sam Falwell had picked him out. There was a sudden spring, a ripple in the stream of passers-by, and the sound of Sam's voice crying, "'Howdy, Cal! I'm darn glad to see you!' And in the angles of Broadway, Fifth Avenue, and Twenty-Third Street, the Cumberland feudists shook hands. End of Squaring the Circle by O. Henry Read to you by Patrick Reinhardt